Hi everyone, you're listening to the Beyond the Benchmark podcast. I've been off for three weeks and very well replaced by Daniel Murray actually during the last few weeks. But uh, anyway, this week we have a, a, our quarterly special insight um, podcast where I have with me the A-team on the macro team. So we have Daniel Murray, Stefan Gerlach, Paul Templeton, Joaquin Tool, Gianluigi Mandrozato. And of course, myself, we will go through the insight page by page. And uh, hopefully this is a, a nice addition to reading the insight itself. So we'll go straight into it and we'll go into the overview and um, I'll bring in Daniel at this point. Uh, I guess, Daniel, the first elements of uh, the insight this, uh, this quarter is, uh, is really a, a check on how the major economies are recovering. Yeah, it's been uh, been a remarkable year in that context, Mo. So if you think about where we were a year ago at the depths of the crisis when it felt like activity was just falling off a cliff and you look where we are today, it's been uh, uh, a truly incredible experience. So from the uh, the lows of the second quarter last year, most economies around the world have experienced a, a pretty decent recovery. Um, China, notably, its, uh, its GDP is above its uh, pre-pandemic peak, and the US is expected to surpass its pre-pandemic peak um, uh, by the middle of this year, with other countries uh, perhaps at the end of this year. And that recovery, of course, has been well supported by a combination of really strong monetary and fiscal support. I think what is telling is that that monetary and fiscal support is expected to stay in place um, for the time being, and that implies that actually growth rates for this year are pretty good. And it, you know, it's notable, for example, that the IMF recently upgraded its growth outlook um, for 2021 and uh, also to a lesser extent for 2022, no small part due to this ongoing stimulus that's uh, very much helping with recoveries around the world. So it's been really uh, yeah, a phenomenal experience over the past year. And thankfully, uh, that strong growth expected to continue. So I guess the big concern for many, certainly in, in March, was um, worries about inflation and obviously the impact on the, on the long bond. Um, um, maybe sort of take us through you know, the current thinking around inflation and obviously um, what the bond market you know, will look like certainly for the next few quarters. Yeah, so some people are concerned that this uh, double whammy of very strong monetary stimulus plus very strong fiscal stimulus, notably in the US with the recent signing into law of the 1.9 trillion stimulus bill and this uh, newly released proposal to add another 2.3 trillion in infrastructure bill. Some people are concerned that this is going to um, cause inflation to overshoot central banks' targets around the world. And uh, that, in turn, uh, some people say, is being reflected in higher bond yields. Uh, we actually think that it's less of a concern. We think there's bound to be a short-term pop in inflation just because of the base effects and the way that mathematically uh, the lows of last year in inflation are going to mean that the comparisons this year become much easier. But we think that that's going to fade as the year progresses. Um, we do think that the rise in bond yields that we've seen over the past six months or so is uh, is more permanent. Uh, but we know that it's nothing in particular to worry about. We view it's much more of a normalisation than as anything else. And um, that's because... Uh, Bond yields have really just returned to the low end of their pre-COVID range. Um, so uh, uh, they might rise a bit further, but that wouldn't signify anything in particular to worry about, just be continued normalisation. And um, 
also the uh, the rise in bond yields will um, likely be uh, capped and prevented from going too far by the fact that central banks to continue to expand their balance sheet. So just view this as a completely normal reaction to uh, to ongoing growth and uh, a normalization, but nothing in particular to worry about. So part of the growth thesis is um, savings, essentially, as a result of the fact that uh, everyone's been in lockdown, there's been a huge hiatus in both, um, I guess, consumer spending and um, and plenty of reserves being accumulated to, I guess, unleash a wave of spending over the next couple of quarters. Um, maybe sort of give us your thoughts on um, on uh, the savings uh, that are obviously quite uh, high, quite excessive at the moment, and, and how that will be spent. Yeah, so what we've seen is that because the um, financial support provided by governments around the world was so large, that for some groups of people within economies, um, they've been able to save quite a lot, particularly those groups of people that have remained employed. And of course, as confidence returns and as growth returns and as jobs return to the economy, so you'd expect a part of those savings to be spent. And, and um, that naturally will uh, support uh, economies. And uh, of course, it's notable that you know most developed economies, the consumption share of output is uh, is usually somewhere between about 60 and 70%. So it's really important that you get that engine of growth working uh, if you want growth to be sustained on, a, on an ongoing basis. Essentially, globally, there's a, around $4 trillion to be unleashed with at least two of that $4 trillion in, in the US. It's certainly going to be a, um, a, a potential um, locomotive for, uh, for spending. Um, and I guess we'll touch upon the fiscal response in a few moments but um, certainly that looks to be very strong obviously the other concern is obviously the excessive kind of money supply and you know the fear that that excess liquidity and money supply finds itself into inflation but also into uh, commodity prices so uh, maybe Jan Luigi can, can you um, give us the latest thoughts on uh, the uh, the oil price and commodity prices in general? Well, commodity prices have been rising strongly on the back of uh, improved sentiment about the growth, the, the provisions that uh, Daniel mentioned of, of US and global growth by IMF, just uh, latest uh, testimony of that. However, particularly with respect to oil, uh, we, we think that maybe you know markets have been getting a bit too much uh, optimistic uh, at the end of the day, uh, international organizations have been uh, sequentially reducing their expectation for increased uh, demand for oil uh, this year. And the inventories uh, remain uh, relatively high by historical standard and when compared to current uh, demand for oil. So um, there is a risk that probably we have already seen the top for oil prices for this year and that from here prices will more easily uh, fall a bit more. Uh, without that being, uh, you know, uh, anywhere near what was uh, seen last year when, when the pandemic hit the global economy. So we move then on to uh, page uh, four of the insight and just a quick review of the asset market performance in, in Q1. And uh, uh, in dollar terms, we saw world equities up around 5%. Uh, and then we saw um, actually fixed income um, in dollar terms down about four and a half. So you had... Uh, both the pressure on on yields, you know, going higher, steepening of the yield curve, but we also had that with uh, with the strengthening of the dollar, and that certainly had a, a quite meaningful impact 
for dollar-based investors. Uh, Sterling was also uh, one of the stronger currencies. That also made it a little bit more difficult for uh, for Sterling-based investors. The winners, in certainly in this case, were the euro-based and the Swiss uh, franc-based um, investors who benefited from the weakness in their uh, in their relative currencies. Um, the other sort of key market performer was uh, was Taiwan, and uh, you know at the moment, you know um, a lot of strategists and um, um, and commentators are really thinking about semiconductors and chips being more important than oil in this cycle. Um, and uh, certainly that seems to be playing out both in the short term in terms of excessive shortages, uh, but also um, uh, you know, worries around you know, uh, Taiwan and the relationship between China and Taiwan, and uh, obviously the need to, um, uh, to, to have semiconductors both in China because they were locked out certainly under the Trump administration, uh, but also ensuring that there's plenty of supply in the US and Europe itself. So um, uh, I think that's probably a, uh, a talk for another time, but uh, certainly um, we've seen uh, certainly in the latest kind of Biden packages, uh, specific bills around uh, semiconductors. So you know, there certainly seems to be a, a, a super cycle building uh, there. Um, so then now at this part of the insight, we go into um, the country and region uh, uh, elements to really kind of drill down about what's going on there. So uh, we're going to talk about the US and uh, I'll bring in uh, Stefan. So I guess, Stefan, the kind of two or two or three really key elements at the moment. First of all, is obviously the uh, the fiscal support. Um, the second, obviously, the continued improvement uh, in employment. And, uh, and we have a rather fascinating section about uh, debt servicing costs. So m- maybe, Stefan, do you want to take us through the um, the trillions being spent at the moment in the U.S.? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, uh, there are two components uh, in, in this year. We have the March uh, American Rescue Plan and now this proposed the infrastructure package. I think the American Rescue Plan was $1.9 trillion as a headline number, and this headline number for the infrastructure package is $2.3 trillion. Of course, uh, the uh, details here will change, the size and the way this will be financed and so on will evolve as this is being negotiated uh, and and an attempt is being made to get this through Congress. But I think with respect to the infrastructure project, I think this is really really important because um, infrastructure spending has two impacts on the uh, economy. It boosts demand uh, sort of early on when the uh, when the spending sort of comes on, online, um, but it has also an impact on on future growth uh, and on future uh, income levels, uh, and in particular, it will have an impact on on corporate pr- profitability. Bad infrastructure is a big problem for firms in many countries, in particular in emerging economies, but it can also be a problem in developed economies. And I think in the U.S., this is one of the uh, this is one of the of the problems. Um, so spending on infrastructure will boost the economy, but will also be provide actually help uh, to firms uh, uh, later on. Um, so that is very important. Of course, this infrastructure project will be paid for. It looks like now. Uh, by corporate tax increases, and that uh, may or may not uh, have a contractionary impact, or the contractionary impact may or may not be large. But uh, but uh, um, I think in the big scheme thing, this is a package uh, which is actually uh, 
when it looks it looks pretty uh, pretty good. Um, to come back to what we um, what Daniel I think touched on earlier, um, this package by enhancing growth, even in the future, will of course have an immediate impact on on current bond yields, and that is one reason why long bond yields have been bit up, bit up in the uh, in the U.S. So um, I can sort of see how the markets have have responded to, uh, to these uh, to these packages. So in particular, to the left package, and I think in many ways this. Uh, this looks uh, this, this looks very good. Again, we have to see exactly what uh, what is being um, what Congress will decide. The Democrats do not have a very um, you know a very a strong uh, position. You need to have everybody on board to get this over over the line. I suspect that there will be uh, there will be uh, changes made to this um, to this um, infrastructure package. But I, but uh, it. My hope, of course, is, is that this will go through, and I think it would be a uh, it would be a good thing for the American economy to have a, a large dose of government spending falling on uh, on uh, productive infrastructure. So we have obviously the employment situation continues to uh, to uh, you know, to improve. Um, any kind of comments specifically you think here in terms of um, you know, what markets and the Fed will be looking at um, you know on a going forward basis? Well, I think the the I mean one way to think about this is to just look at non-farm uh, uh, payrolls, and there we we saw a a decline in in March and April last year of something like twenty two million jobs, and about half of those have come back. Uh, so we are actually quite some distance away. Uh, from having a sort of offset this enormous shock to the labor market. It is the same thing, for instance, if you look at the labor force participation rate, which fell from something like 63% in, the, in early 2020 to something like 60%. It was an, an enormously large move, but has recovered about half again to 61 and a half percent, something sort of around, around there. So the U.S. labor market has started to recover. It looks good, but we are still a very long distance away from being back uh, to the situation in January and February um, uh, last year. So there is a lot more, a lot more, a lot more work to, to be done, if you like. And uh, I think this will weigh very heavily on the, on the Fed's minds now, in particular since the Fed announced last fall that they will be uh, focusing more on the labor market effectively in setting new monetary policy than they have in the uh, they have in the past and then the last section we have on uh, debt servicing and uh, there's some very interesting statistics around how much revenue um or how much uh, interest payments make up in terms of um uh, the the revenues from tax receipts. Uh, any any thoughts on that? I, I, one statistic I thought was quite interesting was that um, was in 1995 when debt levels were much lower, interest rates were higher, interest payments absorbed nearly one quarter of U.S. government revenues, which are, I find quite interesting compared to say 12 and a half percent today. Yes, of course. I mean, I, I think this is really the key point, not only in the U.S. but also in other countries. The fact that the interest cost, the interest cost of public debt, has come down is one of the reasons why governments have started to to borrow more. And in many ways, this has been one of the objectives of central banks. By pushing down long uh, long yields, you make it possible for 
for for firms, but also for governments to borrow to borrow more. Uh, so so the so yeah, this is a really, really striking fact, but I think it does illustrate very well what has been going on in in, in in recent years as interest rates have come down gradually over time government borrowing has been, uh, has picked up in many in many countries uh, partially because of of course because of the global financial crisis and covid now but yes in general lower interest rates uh, has engendered more borrowing as people all borrowers look at uh, what fraction of income they need to spend on servicing their their debts? Um, I guess the question here will be how this will sort of be. Uh, what will happen if interest rates turn north? Um, they will probably take some time for that to happen. But that it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to avoid uh, recognizing recognizing that that could well be a uh, an unpleasant uh, an unpleasant uh, episode when when we get to it sometime in the probably far future. future. Jam today certainly sounds like the uh, the course of action. Uh, so talking about jam today, we'll move on to the UK uh, and Daniel. Um, uh, obviously, jam today for us is uh, having a successful vaccine rollout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it's notable that I think the UK had one of the worst experiences of COVID last year amongst developed nations, with a very sharp contraction in GDP. But actually. Um, Whilst uh, the government struggled with some aspects of COVID last year, one of the things it has got right is the vaccination policy. And that, of course, will mean that the economy can open up more quickly, that uh, confidence will return more quickly. And that, of course, in turn, should help to, uh, to drive the economy, which, of course, is a very welcome thing, given that we've all experienced such difficult conditions for such a prolonged period of time. So, uh, so as I say, you know, the government may have got a few things wrong, but at least it's got the vaccination strategy correct. We also touch upon, um, I guess, a kind of interesting phenomenon in terms of um, uh, the benefits of U.S. stimulus itself. And UK seems to be one of the biggest beneficiaries. Yeah, exactly. So obviously there's always spillover effects um, from uh, the, the stimulus of one country to another. But because the U.S. is uh, such a large economy, then uh, clearly that has uh, benefits to many other economies around the world. And those benefits can be quite large. Now, it's natural, of course, that um, it's uh, the U.S.'s closest trading partners will benefit the most. So countries like Canada and Mexico actually get most of the benefit. But um, of uh, the other nations, uh, the U.K. Um, certainly does very well. And that um, uh, no doubt reflects the close uh, historical uh, uh, trading partnership that the U.K. Um, has with, uh, uh, with the U.S., Within the kind of last section of that, we we, we delve into the um, um, to the kind of UK tax burden um, and um, and thoughts around that. Um, any any kind of thinking around that we'll end up following the the or the UK will end up following the US in terms of kind of corporate tax increases, um, and indeed the UK does have one of the lowest tax corporate tax rates in the world whether we can indeed keep those international businesses in the UK. Yeah, it's a difficult, uh, uh, you know, difficult equation for the Chancellor to, to balance. Uh, not only is he trying to encourage conditions that will boost recovery in the UK in the post-COVID environment, and so doesn't want to increase the tax burden by too much, but of course he's also dealing with the aftermath of Brexit. And if the UK becomes an unattractive place to invest and to work and to do business with, then that will clearly make adjustment to the post-Brexit world a bit more challenging. 
what the Chancellor has, of course, announced recently um, in the, uh, uh, the March budget was that um, corporate tax increases are expected a couple of years um, uh, down the road. Um, and that gives him a little bit of breathing space. And it does, of course, mean that if by the time we get um, to uh, uh, the point where he said that he would raise taxes, but the situation um, doesn't really warrant it, then he can, of course, change his mind. So uh, very cleverly, the Chancellor announced these tax increases, but he may not actually have to implement them, depending on a whole range of factors. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Delicately poised is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, another place Indeed. that's delicately poised is is the Eurozone. Um, and, uh, and you know, Jan, unfortunately, Europe, and I guess you're relatively close proximity at least to uh, to Italy at the moment um, and uh, the fourth wave um, um, any sort of thoughts around um, um, whether this is indeed going to be successful given that the vaccine rollout generally in Europe has been a lot slower than than elsewhere eventually also Europe will will overcome the, the crisis as uh, the other countries are doing of course given the the slow rollout of vaccines and all the uh, ramblings about it, which are continuing. Uh, uh, if you've heard about the, the decision or non-decision about uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine uh, and to whom she should be uh, given, um, it means that uh, Europe will will reach that uh, that spot later than than other economies, and that of course that will affect its performance in terms of GDP growth uh, this year and possibly also next year, and and possibly also financial assets. And of course, that will, uh, uh, you know, uh, have a bearing on uh, monetary policy and, and fiscal policy decisions. Because, of course, uh, uh, a weaker recovery means that uh, stimulus uh, will be needed for, for longer. We um, we briefly touched upon eurozone tourism and, and GDP, and certainly we have um, the sunnier parts of Europe, i.e., Greece, Portugal, and Spain, uh, and Italy, are quite sensitive. Uh, to tourism, um, and uh, there's a nice little uh, chart there on uh, uh, chart number seventeen on page seven uh, that, that covers that. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the big fear uh, out there is whether following sort of two thousand eight and two thousand nine crises that we had, you know, with with a great uh, financial crisis, do we have a, a repeat uh, of of that? Um, of that period as we came into 2010 and then 2011. Um, uh, thoughts around that? Well, uh, there's always, of course, a risk that uh, European um, politicians uh, uh, under-deliver. Uh, but uh, this time around, uh, when compared, of course, with the Eurozone debt crisis of about 10 years ago, the attitude and the possibly the understanding of the issues at stake uh, is, is much higher today. And that was already visible last year when, in fact, the fiscal response all included, so both the, uh, the, 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 the community response from the European Commission Recovery and Resilience Plan and the national plans that were eventually allowed for by, by the European Commission relaxing the stability and growth pack rules. Uh, well, actually, the fiscal response in, in Europe was larger than it was last year in, in the US and in many other countries. Uh, this year, so far, at least, uh, things have been going uh, relatively slowly, but, and definitely this is true for the uh, deployment of the funds from the Recovery and Resilience uh, uh, Plan. But uh, at local level, 
fiscal policy is being used uh, as uh, as needed. And so you had in the last few weeks uh, sharp provisions uh, for larger deficits uh, in Germany and Italy, and given the latest decisions in France to impose a new strict lockdown for a few more weeks, that looks likely that uh, similar developments will also happen in, uh, in France. So uh, the situation will remain, unfortunately, a bit more complicated and for a bit longer than in other economic areas. But uh, the awareness of the risks uh, will probably uh, advise politicians to take the right decision and avoid uh, spiraling the economy into another crisis. Let's move then on to uh, on to Switzerland, um, and uh, I guess the kind of the key the key decision um, to be made there is is around the fiscal response. Um, uh, your thoughts on that? Well, the fiscal response in Switzerland uh, has been uh, uh, aggressive uh, when compared to say historical standards, Swiss historical standards. So the deficit uh, of 2020 and, and what is now expected for 2021 are the largest in, in a number of years. But when it is compared to uh, what other countries have done, uh, of course, the, the first comparison that comes to mind is with, with Eurozone countries and with the fiscal space that is available to uh, Swiss authorities, given that debt to GDP uh, was below 40% according to IMF calculations at the end of 2019. And even taking into account these larger deficits, uh, it is only expected to rise to about uh, 43, 44% of GDP uh, at the end of 2021. Uh, After which uh, the the Federal Council already envisages a balanced budget for, for for next year and a small surplus for the following two years which risks indeed uh, being a bit premature in terms of fiscal normalization when possibly the economy has not fully recovered and anyway uh, would uh, kind of limit the the growth potential of the Swiss economy, which otherwise uh, is uh, well in order. It has been growing steadily and strongly and remains very competitive, but possibly could be even, even better if the fiscal policy was used in a bit more pro-cyclical way, uh, given that there is room for doing it. Absolutely uh, fascinating. Um, you can certainly spend a lot more. You've got to wonder when they will spend it, if ever. Um, so uh, again, very, very interesting. Uh, so let's move on to um, Asia. And uh, I'm going to bring Paul into this uh, discussion because we do, uh, with popular request, actually, a little bit more of a deeper dive uh, into uh, into India. Um, obviously, Paul, India had um, a much kind of worse uh, economic response during the kind of height of COVID. Uh, but obviously, the, the 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 deeper the V, the bigger the recovery, um, and that's certainly what we're expecting. Although I do note at the moment that the um, COVID numbers in in India is. Uh, as we're, I'm looking at Joaquin here, he's, he's with me here at the office here, um, nearly as bad as Brazil in terms of, um, in terms of numbers. But um, the, um, um, you know, what's your thoughts in terms of you know, the bigger recovery potential out of India and what that means both for its, current, uh, both for its currency and actually the, the benefit it had or short-term benefit it had on the current account? It's an interesting economy. And certainly the... V-shaped recovery that we've seen. We've got a 
A recovery tracker produced by HSBC shows that activity is back to what it was pre-COVID. Now that might soften a bit given what's been happening, especially in Mumbai recently with the uh, increased COVID uh, rate. But I'm just looking at the IMF's latest World Economic Outfit forecast released recently. It's going to be the strongest growing economy in the world at 12.5% in 2021 on the basis of their forecast, which is something really sort of quite amazing. Um, I always like to look at some alternative indicators and you might have seen the World Happiness Report came out recently and Indians are miserable. Um, in the World Happiness Rankings, they've, sh- they've gone up. They used to be right at the bottom, 145th out of 149. They've gone up to 139th, but they're not happy with things, not happy with things at all. And I've been trying to put my finger on this. Um, I talked to lots of well, in the Gulf, they're called NRIs, non-resident Indians. And we talk to them a lot in, when I travel to the Gulf region. We always talk about, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea to invest in India? And they say, you don't know my country very well. I say, oh, well, what's the matter? So, well, it's got very high interest rates and the currency might stabilize. They say, oh, don't believe a word of it. Uh, we prefer a hard currency. And so this is the inspiration of the charter that uh, I drew with uh, Gianluigi's help on the Indian uh, rupee depreciation over time. And it's so uh, predictable. I mean, the inflation differential between India and the US is two and a half percent per year. And the Indian rupee depreciates by two and a half percent per year. It just sort of follows the sort of downward trend uh, in relative prices. And I think when Modi was first elected and then we had Raghuram Rajan at the Reserve Bank of England, people thought, this is all going to change and uh, we're going to head into a new low inflation era, a bit like Thatcherism, you know, much more, uh, you know, reform and structural change and so on. Uh, I was actually on, on a call with Raghuram Rajan this morning and uh, his line is, well, no, it's not happened. It's sad. Um, Reserve Bank of India is a bit more success in controlling inflation, but it's now up to 5% for all of the reasons we just talked about sort of globally. Um, And structural reform, well, leaves very much to be desired. The current news is uh, trying to privatise the publicly owned sort of banks, but I'm not sure how far that will get. Um, the current account went into surplus in 2020. Uh, it's because it's a heavy oil-using economy, and oil imports in particular uh, were cut back. Uh, but it still has that vulnerability on the current account. So I'd probably go back into something like a 2% current account deficit. But how do you deal with that? Well, unfortunately, some of the old techniques. I mean, they they come, the techniques come from the sort of economics textbook I read in the 1970s. You've got to promote your homegrown industries by clamping down on imports of things that you could make domestically. So you might have seen recently, I'm sorry, foreign air conditioners, we're not going to have any of those in India. 
Uh, we can make them ourselves. So yeah, I know they might be cheaper in Thailand and China and so on, but nope, 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 no, 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 we've got to support our own industry. And it's things like that that make you concerned about whether or not this hoped for structural reform in the Indian economy is actually going to be achieved. You hope it does, you hope it is, but it seems to be constantly frustrated. Sort of that uh, unrealized potential, isn't it? Uh, that is just, it's, it's sort of kind of always there, but just never quite uh, gets it. But I guess the, the key thing, and I think this is probably the most important point when it comes to India, it's actually a very, very closed economy um, as, as a result of the, the I, I guess the policy infrastructure is probably the best way to describe it. Um, so uh, it, there's a lot of smaller homegrown companies that, that do very, very well. And I think that's a very good point to make. Um, so it is a very large domestic economy. So if there's an innovation, for example, it's an argument often used about the American economy. You know, Americans can innovate and they can sell it, at, you know, new products at home to start with and see if they work there. I hear the same arguments made uh, about India. In fact, that argument was used in the air conditioning debate to the extent there was a debate um yes sort of sounds okay um but i'm not sure in this world that that sort of semi-protectionist domestically orientated industrial focus is really the right way to go and i didn't appreciate this point until just this morning um india uh has now been exceeded it's a GDP per head in dollar terms. It's now exceeded by that in Bangladesh, which has been taken very, very badly indeed. Um, uh, so that's just over $3,000 current prices for Bangladesh, just under $3,000 per head uh, in India. And Bangladesh 10 years ago was an economy that had GDP per head a half that of India. So, I mean, this, something has been sort of lost. Um, so it's not necessarily the comparison with China. I mean, China's grown and we know how China's grown and what they've done to achieve that. But Bangladesh, you'd think, gosh, it's just as chaotic an economy as, as, as India, but it's managed to grow much more successfully over the last five, 10 years than has India. Very, very fascinating. I think that, um, thanks, Paul, for that. I think it um, certainly... India is a, a, a big a bit of an enigma for, for global investors. It um, is, yes. Um, I think so that uh, certainly clarified some of the challenges uh, that it, that it uh, needs to go through. And um, as I said, I think the, the Modi government was very much driven on the idea of kind of innovation and, and new, new ways, but it just looks as though it's potentially sinking back to old ways, uh, which is, which is, you know, certainly a concern, and, I, and, I, and it probably explains why they're 139 out of 149 in the <laughs> index. Um, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> it's sad. It is sad. Great. So um, I, I don't think it gets much better when we move to Latin America. <laughs> uh, so I actually have Joaquin here in the uh, in the office here with me. So um, um, Joaquin, obviously the Latin American um, recovery, um, you've obviously got some big winners like um, you know Peru and your hometown of uh, or home country of Uruguay um, um, thoughts on what's going on there and obviously 
we are moving to rate hikes in, uh, in places like Brazil. Yeah, so the um, by the end of last year, we already started seeing some uh, recoveries in in some of the the Latin um, Latin countries. Uh, however, the um, the magnitude of the decline in GDP last year was was quite severe, like around just over eight percent for for the whole region. Um, however, there, there's still some some positive things for for this year that have that drove, for example, the IMF to to upgrade the um, the outlook for GDP for for this year, expecting growth of of uh, just over four point five percent in in twenty twenty one for for the whole region. However, we we expect uh, that this recovery will be will be slow, it will take time, and will also be quite uneven between between countries. And this is um, mostly due to, to to three main things. The first one is that uh, Latin America still hasn't um, managed to control the spread of the virus. So a lot of the um, restrictions to mobility, lockdown measures, all of these things are going to continue to to be in place for at least the, the first half of this year. And this will also uh, delay, let's say, the the, the, the normal functioning of, of some of these economies. Um, we've seen cases like in, in Brazil, for example, we have uh, over 60,000 new cases every day and almost 3,000 uh, deaths uh, every day. Um, and, and vaccination rates there have been have been very, very slow with um, so far less than 10% of the population receiving, receiving one dose of, of the vaccine. Uh, the second uh, reason why we, we expect that this too is going to be slow is the, the large amount of political uncertainty in, in, in the region. Um, we've seen this in, in Brazil, for example, with um, a high uh, number of changes in the in the cabinet of President Bolsonaro, uh, and we also uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, elections and political events this year uh, in, in in Ecuador, in Peru, in Mexico, in Argentina. All of these uh, events will create some uncertainty um, and have already started to uh, show some uh, the, the the rise of both left and right wing um, political. Um, uh, political, political extremes or populisms uh, that will threaten, let's say, the, the, the normal functioning of, 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 of political activity there. And the final uh, thing is the, the little policy flexibility. Last year, we saw that um, uh, Latin countries, although their fiscal expansion was um, of a less magnitude than we've seen in developed economies, you uh, already tested the, the, the fiscal sustainability of some of these economies that were already starting from a very poor um, uh, level of um, uh, or very high uh, fiscal deficits, let's say. So there's very um, there's a small um, limit, let's say, to or scope to increase the the, the fiscal expansion, um, and and also monetary policy has been quite loose, and a lot of countries brought rates down quite significantly to to historical lows, and therefore there's no more space to to bring interest rates uh, down any further. Um, and we've seen, for example, in the case of um, of, of some commodity exporters, such as, such as Brazil, that the, the, in, the pickup in, in commodity prices in, in, in oil, in agricultural uh, products, uh, is already starting to um, to affect the the consumer price index, and this drove the um, the Brazilian central bank in the middle of, of March to to be the first one to hike rates by seventy five basis points, um, and so we're expecting that. Some other central banks will have to follow. We've seen Mexican inflation as well coming up very highly um, yesterday. Um, and probably this will start to, to pan out in some of the other countries as well, that by the end of this year, 
um, maybe the end, yeah, maybe the fourth quarter of this year, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll also have to, to hike rates as well. Certainly um, challenging for Latin America and certainly we've remained very cautious in the region. Um, it does beg the question that if we do see um, a, say, substantial strength in the US dollar, that this would obviously lead to uh, potentially, you know, a more deeper slowdown um, mm. as we as we go into uh, you know next year or the year before uh, the year after, uh, assuming that the global economy picks up and they still have some benefit from that, which That's they right. naturally would. Yeah, uh, the, um, the the impact of the of the fiscal stimulus in in the US is definitely going to help. Um, some some of the economies that have more uh, tighter economic links with 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 them, like Mexico or like Brazil, are probably going to be the 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 best uh, biggest beneficials from from, from this. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly worth keeping a very close eye on the dollar and the Latin American financial market. So we uh, we're now sort of drawing to a close, but we come to our special focus, which is uh, we always use the special focus as a as an area where we get a lot of our FAQs or frequently asked questions, and certainly in the in the first quarter, digital currencies was certainly an area that got a lot of attention um, from uh, from from our clients, from our listeners, uh, and our client relationship managers. So, um, so we, um, we we jotted a few thoughts together uh, around um, digital currencies and, and kind of what's going on. Uh, so maybe Paul, do you want to take us through? the cbdc's um or and obviously we i guess um there have been a, a couple that have been launched but we've probably got the first major one coming up yes indeed so i uh, what we've tried to do in this is to make a distinction between private digital currencies and particularly bitcoin and central bank digital currencies so those in issued by central banks and china has an experiment at the moment with its e yuan uh, that's the most prominent one, um, and just set out, you know, which one's going to win if there's a competition between the two. I think, in a sense, that bit, you know, the means of payment, is, is a bit of an unfair competition. I mean, I've just got the two words that Janet Yellen used to describe Bitcoin as a means of payment: extremely inefficient. Uh, and it is, and we, you know, to put some numbers on that, you can process uh, in terms of number of transactions five a second for Bitcoin and 2,000 uh, a second for Visa and MasterCard. And then add in the sort of the difficulty of making transactions, the price volatility, and so on. I mean, it's all very well, Elon Musk saying use Bitcoin to buy your Tesla, but that's all a bit silly. I mean, it's really not going to happen. So once central banks get their digital currencies working, I think it's a bit of an unfair sort of competition. But of course, this is coming at the same time as Bitcoin's prices, well, it's going up erratically. And we've got a little chart showing the, uh, it has to be on a log scale, the sort of tenfold increases in Bitcoin that have taken, uh, you know, that, that we've seen over the course of, of the same time it was launched in 2011. So, you know, just, just 10 years or so ago. Um, and we've had four such tenfold price increases. 
And now, of course, you know, we have forecasts that it can go to whatever, you know, some astronomical number, $300,000 um, or whatever. And you think, oh, well, this, you know, someone like me automatically thinks, yes, Janet Yellen, she's making sense and it's not going to be a means of payment. But then this other rather interesting development comes along and it's the NFT, the non-fungible tokens. I was reading my weekend financial times a couple of weeks ago and on the front page, um, there was a sentence that went like this. It's not a, it, it, a crypto investor with a mysterious name, it should be said, has paid $69 million in Ether for an NFT, a non-fungible token, for a piece of artwork by Beeple. I'm thinking, did I not sleep very well? Because th this sort of, this doesn't seem to make, what is going on here? Um, so he paid in Ether, so another digital currency. Uh, he, has, of course, has a mysterious name and is sort of, you know, somewhat sort of anonymous. Uh, the NFT is a non-fungible token. So the artwork is represented by a non-fungible token. Um, that is something which guarantees the provenance of that sort of piece of artwork. And it's by someone called Beeple. I'd never heard of Beeple before. I looked at his photo. He looks like the sort of person that could easily work in EFG asset management or private bank. He, he's got a sort of very conservative dark blue shirt with a paler blue sweater and a sensible haircut and serious glasses. It's not what I expected him to look like. So I'm afraid, you know, checking up on each of these aspects of the FT story, I was getting more and more sort of disturbed about what's going on here. Um, so what are the elements that are exciting in that? Uh, the provenance and the ownership and the non-fungible token. And in a way, you can turn that on its head a bit because when we talk about traditional money, we say it's fungible. So, you know, you can change a five pound note into five one pound coins. Coins. You can have your five pounds sort of represented sort of in a bank account, or you can have it sort of represented on a, you know, on, on your iPhone and sort of use a, a Apple Pay or whatever. It's fungible. Money can take many different forms. With non-fungible tokens, the benefit of them is that entirely not fungible. So you've got a, a, a token which represents your ownership of that piece of artwork, the first tweet, uh, a photograph of a cat or whatever, and that might mean that it retains its value better. It's a funny old world, Mose, and I, I think you've been thinking about this as well a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is, it is, it is quite fascinating, this moving so fast. Um, and you know, staying on top of the, the developments and the number of company announcements is is quite astonishing. Um, uh, we have um, uh, have already considering a um, a NFT on the uh, on the uh, the first Beyond the Benchmark podcast. Uh, it would be worth a lot. It would be worth a lot of money, absolutely. <laughs> So, um, so we have been thinking about uh, that as well. But uh, you know, for those of you who don't really, who haven't really followed the the, the story, um, in in essence, it, you know, so far at least with Beeple's, it's been in digital artwork, um, and the way to kind of best describe it is is uh, you know you have 
the original artwork, say the Mona Lisa, uh, could be uh, considered the, the, the NFT. Um, and then you have you know, thousands upon thousands of millions of pictures of the Mona Lisa that are actually not worth very much. So, uh, so the, the original artwork uh, and the provenance of that original art, artwork is is what makes uh, NFTs, uh, you know, particularly interesting. Um, and um, certainly from the sort of early work um, that we've done is thinking about NFTs with respect to, uh, you know, contracts could be, you know, easily applied example to um to real estate uh, to property uh, and the way i think about this is i think the very first comment paul that you made is um fr- you know, making the world frictionless so um uh, you know you talk about bitcoin at sort of five five transactions per second versus 200 per second imagine having 200 per second real estate transactions um and that w- could be possible uh under uh you know uh, NFTs or NFT type of um, technologies, and that to me is is quite fascinating, and certainly has major implications for, for example, the legal, uh, the legal um, profession, um, and you know, I always call the legal profession as as particularly inherently um, with tons of tons of friction because it certainly suits uh, lawyers lawyers fees but um certainly if if you know land registry became frictionless for example you know that um you know the, the savings um that could be achieved are just absolutely enormous um and so you know this has some very interesting long term kind of consequences uh, quite frankly we're still trying to um uh, or say market participants and people are still trying to to figure out where this goes but it's a, a very very fast moving uh, topic and uh, already we're seeing uh, you know billionaires being created um, day by day from uh, from the developments in this area so uh, again a very fascinating topic and certainly uh, something that we will be tackling on the podcast in the coming weeks and months so uh, uh, gentlemen thank you very much for uh, for um, uh, providing your insights uh, i think it's again another greatly thought out uh, document uh, lots of interesting thoughts and ideas and uh, obviously please please feel free to come back to us uh, with questions or thoughts or comments and we will indeed have them addressed on the podcast so thank you and we will Uh, be back here again next week.